It's good that you're gathered together with us here today. This is the last uh, message in seven on um, wealth and possessions. Uh, it has been a look at what the Bible has to say, a real broad, quick overview about what the Bible has to do with wealth and possessions. And these last uh, two weeks have been particularly on the area of stewardship and generosity to the needs of others. And this is the final look at um, what the Bible has to say about generosity, uh, particularly in the New Testament. And we're coming at it from another angle again today, different from the weeks that we have come at it before. Uh, the idea is, how do we cultivate a biblical mindset for generosity? I think it's important for us to realize when we think about giving, that giving is a mental and an emotional act as well as an act of worship. And I suspect this is one of the reasons why there are so many people that are gifted in raising funds in different avenues. Because they understand the psychological aspect of giving. They understand what it is that motivates people to give, how you can motivate people to give more. And I think it helps us to be aware of this and to look at how the Bible motivates us to give. It makes a, give, a difference when our giving and our stewardship is determined by biblical realities and established in a biblical framework by biblical patterns and guided by biblical principles as opposed to giving that is guided by sinful and even human motivations. When we come to the book of Corinthians, the two letters to Corinthians, we do understand that they were written in a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific congregation, addressing a, particularly, or a particular human concern. But as we think about human nature, human nature doesn't change over the centuries. It is really very much the same. Men and women are essentially the same from one century to another century. We are motivated by the same things. Our minds think along the same lines, and they tend to think in the same way. This, by the way, I think is one of the reasons why the Word of God remains relevant from one generation to another generation, from one culture to another culture, because human nature is the same. I've deliberately been framing our stewardship and our generosity uh, in terms of uh, a generosity or a heart that's motivated to give rather than trying to lay out a percentage or an obligation that we ought to follow. And that's because in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, and particularly in the New Testament, generosity is limited only by the willingness of one's heart not by any percentage or standard that we may put before the people. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs chapter 3.9-10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Acts 20, verse 35, one of the verses that we have used to illustrate or to frame New Testament giving, Paul is speaking there and he says, and I have a, been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. And you should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we think about the psychology of giving, we can begin in the first five verses of chapter 9 in 2nd Corinthians and the heart of Paul's words in those first five verses are a promise that has been made 
And there's all kinds of reasons that we make promises, aren't there? There's all kinds of situations in which we give a promise. Sometimes we make a promise under duress. Sometimes we make a promise out of love. Sometimes we make a promise to seal a deal. Sometimes we make a promise to leave a good impression. These are just some of the reasons why we make promises. Sometimes we even make a promise in response to a need and our heartstrings have been pulled as a need has been expressed to us. I think this is what the Corinthians had done up to a year or so earlier. Paul had presented to them the need of the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They had been experienced severe affliction and a famine had uh, moved into uh, all of the Roman Empire. And as Paul was making this known to the Corinthians, they had responded with a promise to give to the need of the Jewish, Jewish Christians. Paul had taken them at their word. And he had taken their promise and their commitment and he had taken it to the Macedonian churches, those in northern Greece. And he said, look, this is what the Corinthian Christians have promised to do. What are you going to do or can you do anything to meet the need of the Christians in Jerusalem. In other words, the promise of the Corinthian Christians had been the motivation and the impetus for the Macedonian Christians then to also give. And we looked at how Paul had used the response of the Macedonian Christians to spur then the Corinthian Christians to follow through with their promise. But as initially the Corinthians had heard about the need, it said they had been eager to give. They heard a need and their heart was stirred and they wanted to give. They were eager to do it. Paul says a little bit later in those first five verses that their zeal to give had motivated others to give. And as we think about this in the Christian community, we ought not to compete with one another in service to give. But what the writer to Hebrews does say is that we ought to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so Paul was using the Corinthian promise to stir the Macedonian Christians into love and good deeds. And so time has passed and now Paul is writing the Corinthians and he's reminding them of this promise. You notice maybe as, as Chris read that the, the, the tone is a gentle tone. It's not a tone of rebuke. It's not a tone of hammering them over the head, so to speak, but it's a gentle tone. You don't get the sense that this is a reprimand as much as it's just a gentle word of encouragement to them. Now, we don't know what it was that motivated them to make the promise in the first place. Why had they been so eager to give? And this is why I think there's psychology behind giving. What had made them so zealous to make this strong promise of a generous gift? Well, maybe the times had been good when Paul initially presented them the need and thought, no problem, we've got lots of excess, we can give to this particular need. And so they embraced it. Maybe they really had wanted to set a good example. I think certainly their hearts had been stirred by the Holy Spirit who had spoken to their hearts after they had heard the need and had stirred them to want to make this promise or commitment to give. But whatever the circumstances... They had made this promise. But as time had passed, they had not carried through with their promise. But what we do know is in the intervening time, 
Paul had been boasting about their promise. He had been taking this zealousy and this eagerness back to the Macedonians. But now he was beginning to sense that the promise hadn't been fulfilled. Time had passed and the Macedonians had responded and they had received a generous gift, but they had received nothing from the Corinthians who had initially promised this. So Paul, in his gentleness, sends a few leaders ahead before he gets there himself to remind them of their promise and encourage them to give. That's what we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. He didn't want them to be embarrassed when he showed up and they had to scramble to take up an offering. So again, he sends these men ahead of him to arrange for the promised generosity. And he did so in order to be uh, that the giving uh, from them be seen to be voluntary rather than manipulated. There again is psychology in giving. When you give, is your giving something that comes from the depths of your heart from a free will? Or have you been manipulated by a great sob story or by external circumstances? Again, there's the psychology behind giving. The New International Version says that Paul sent to receive in advance a generous gift, not as one giving grudgingly. Sometimes that is how we are motivated to give. It's a hard thing to do. We give with a closed hand. We don't want to let go of it. There again is the psychology of giving. Have you ever given grudgingly? When you go to put your money in the envelope or go to press the send button on an e-transfer and you, you just hesitate and you think, man, I could really use that money. Have you ever been given because you've been manipulated or encouraged to give by an emotional story? I was reading, about, uh, reading a quote of Mark Twain, and Mark Twain once said that he was so sickened by a long appeal for money that not only did he not give what he had planned to give, but he took a bill out of the plate as it passed him by. The New American Standard Version has to receive a, a, in advance a bountiful gift and not one affected by covetousness. Fascinating, isn't it? Does my giving come from a heart of generosity? Or do I hold back because I think it's initially too much? And does my heart secretly condemn me and say, no, you really need that for yourself. That's something that you've saved up for yourself. Don't let that go. You see, sometimes we make a promise to give because of the way an appeal is made. But later, as we're driving home, we think, well, what did I just do? J.B. Phillips translates verse 5 like this. He says, for I should like it to be a spontaneous gift and not money squeezed out of you. You see, that's biblical giving. Spontaneously giving. Generously giving. Willingly giving. Not giving that it comes from a covetous heart or giving that is squeezed out of us. And to be sure, a promise made does strengthen, I believe, the voluntary nature of a gift. I do believe that. Because there is a place for promises made to God and to others in the matter of giving. By, by saying this, I'm not saying we should ever not make a promise to give or never respond with a commitment to give when we hear a need. I think sometimes the very fact that we make a promise holds us to carry through with how we responded in our heart. 
You see, we make all kinds of promises financially, don't we? We have mortgages, which are financial promises. We have car payments, which are financial promises. We work because we have been given a financial promise that we will be paid so much an hour. But why are we reluctant to follow through with the promises that we have made to give to a certain need? See, the bottom line, and I think Paul is stirring them up, uh, the Corinthians up this way and us, a promise is a verbal or a written guarantee. And as we make a promise, we give our word. And so I ask, does it matter to you that we keep our promises? Do the circumstances in which we make a promise influence whether or not we have to keep that promise and follow through with that promise? If the circumstances change, are we let off the hook and we can say, well, that promise really, you know, I had my fingers crossed or it was in good times. Do we want others to treat the promises they make to us circumstantially? What if God's promises were circumstantial? You see, I think our promises mean something. We certainly believe that God's promises to us mean something. And so why would we as his children be any different when we give our word or make a promise? And so again, the Corinthian believers had made a promise. And Paul gently and carefully reminds them of their promise to make a generous gift to the need. So how does Paul strengthen that promise? How does Paul cultivate a biblical mindset that helps them hang on or keep the promise? Well, it's fascinating as you go through this, and there's a number of points that we'll make as we go through this. The the first thing that Paul does as you build a biblical mindset to giving is that simply this, in giving, you reap what you sow. Paul makes a point about giving from nature. And he wants us to make that connection, this this connection that we see agriculturally to the connection that we have in our giving. It's a proverbial statement, I know. It's It's a general truth. It's not a promise. But we find this worked out in a lot of places in Scripture. Paul, for instance, works this principle out of sowing and reaping as it comes to our spiritual lives. And if we sow sin, we will reap shame and guilt. If we sow righteous behavior, we will, we will reap a, a clean conscience and, and peace in our hearts and minds. But it has material application as well. We've read Proverbs chapter 11, 24 to 25 before. This is the mindset that undergirds biblical giving. There the writer says, one who gives freely, yet grows, yet grows all the richer, while another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters himself will also be watered. Or the words of Jesus, which we have referred to the last two weeks again and again, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure in which you use, it will be measured back to you. And so we're familiar with this promise of reaping and sowing. We know that if we plant in our garden one or two seeds of a wildflower, we will, if we're lucky, see one or two wildflowers grow. But if we take a handful of wildflower seeds and we throw them over a 
piece of land that we've cultivated, we know as those things are watered and then they begin to grow, that we will reap a harvest of wildflowers. And so Paul is reminding them of that as it relates to generosity and giving. You can never be too generous, and our generosity is always repaid with generosity in return. Conversely, stingy giving leads to stingy rewards. John Bunyan noted an old English saying, There was a man they said was, that was mad. The more he gave away, the more he had. You see, a biblical mindset for generous giving then understands that what you sow, you will reap. And that generous giving results in generous receiving. The second thing that Paul notes in verse 7 of chapter 9, the second sort of um, way that we begin to think and shape our thinking so that we respond biblically to needs that are raised is that we follow our hearts. I don't know if you noticed when uh, Chris read from Exodus chapter 15. Three times the heart is referenced when it comes to seeing the poor and giving to them. He says, make sure that when you see a poor person, you don't harden your heart. Make sure that there is not an unworthy thought in your heart when you see a need and are asked to respond to it. Make sure that you don't give to that need with a grudging heart, Moses tells the people. And so as we think about the psychology behind generosity, we realize that biblical generosity is unique because it flows from our hearts. It flows from something that's stirred in our emotions. And as Paul begins to unpack this, he, he says, and we've looked at this before, everyone should give. Each one, there is an individuality about giving. You might not be able to give a lot, but each of us should give a little. Rich and poor aligned are, are to con, 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 cultivate a mindset that says, I need to be involved in generosity. Secondly, he says, each one should give as he has decided. And wait a minute, you say. You've not given me a percentage, Paul. You, I go to the Bible and Paul hasn't given the percentage. So what am I supposed to give? If there's no percentage, if there's no boundary, then what am I supposed to give? How much am I supposed to give? Well, that's what Paul tells them. He says, you make up your mind. You do it yourself. You think it through on your own. Don't let your giving be mindless or legalistic or determined by another. Follow your heart. See, do you want to be free in your giving? Well, here it is. It's up to you. Each one must give as he is decided in his heart. But again, this flows from the first principle. Remember that what you sow, you will reap. So you might say, well, Paul, give me something more. Give me some idea about amounts. Help me out here a little bit. Well, here it is. Each one must give according to his heart. That can be a little bit scary. But it's worth thinking through a little bit. Give according to your heart. I don't think Paul is meaning to say here that our giving should lack reason or thought. But what I do think is that Paul is saying we should allow things like pity and love and grace and mercy and compassion and emotion to influence our giving. 
And that comes in our heart. That resides in our heart. That's why Moses said to the people, don't harden your hearts. If you only give with your head, if you only give rationally, you will come up with all kinds of excuses of how much to limit your giving or how you can't give to a situation. And if we see our brother in need, John says, that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. In other words, we we dampen compassion. We dampen emotion. We dampen pity. We dampen mercy. We close our hearts. How does God's love abide in him? I'm beginning to realize this also as it relates to giving. That often one's initial response to a need, whatever that need might be that you are made aware of, is actually the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And often at that initial time, the, the, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our heart and squeezes it and we say, okay, I'm going to give. And we even think of a number in our head. However, as we begin to think about it, and as we begin to rationalize why such a figure might not be a good thing and why it might not make sense, over time that number begins to decrease and it begins to lessen. And it simply becomes, sometimes it can simply even become a passing thought. Paul says, no, no. Each one of you must determine according to his heart how he will be generous or she will be generous to a particular need. And here's some more psychology about giving. He says, and as you determine that, give according to your heart. Do it not reluctantly or under compassion or under compulsion. Loved ones, think through these verses a little bit. It helps me to think about giving with an open hand versus giving tightly with or giving with my fingers hanging on to something. See, reluctant giving, it seems like I'm holding on to it and you've got to sort of pull it out of my hand. Where giving that's not reluctant, it's just an open hand and just take what you need. Without reluctance, the the money just slips out of my hand towards the need. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse this way. He says, make up your mind what you will give. That will prevent you against sob stories and arm twisting. Not only is it to be individual, not only is it to be determined individually, not only is it to be according to our heart, not only is it to be voluntary, but it's to be cheerful. This is, again, psychology behind giving. Why the heart? Why voluntarily? Why willingly? And, and because God loves a cheerful giver. Can you imagine sitting around a Christmas tree on December 25th, opening gifts, and the giver is muttering under his breath, if only he knew how much that cost? Or if you hadn't given me such a nice gift last year, I I wouldn't have given you the gift that I am this year. Or as the Christmas presents are being opened, he's just checking out his, his visa statement on his phone, just kind of being frustrated by the cost of it. We would think that's absurd, wouldn't we? God doesn't want us to do that either when we see a need and he prompts us to give to it and respond. He wants us to be cheerful about it. In fact, from that word cheerful, we get the word hilarious. Something that's, that's very funny, slide, side-splitting, almost 
comical. Ha, I gave my holiday money away to meet that need. Well, that's nothing. I sold my car and gave all the money away to meet that need. I'm I'm exaggerating, and I don't mean to say that it's irrational or that it's unreasonable. But uh, hilarious doesn't have to mean irresponsible either. It can mean, though, that an explanation might not make sense to you. But I just felt in my heart that I wanted to give that. And I'm happy that I'm able to give that. And God is happy with me because I'm happy to give that. And God loves a cheerful giver. And it makes sense to God. So I'm happy to do it. See, the cheerfully generous person is loved by God. God loves a cheerful giver. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudgingly grudging when you give it to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So another aspect of a biblical mindset or psychology behind giving is cultivating a willing cheerful generosity that flows from your heart. Another aspect of biblical psychology, if you want to put it, behind giving is, in giving, you can't outgive God. Look at verse 8 of Second uh, Corinthians. It seems to me that Paul is anticipating objections that maybe the Corinthians will raise or at least further questions and someone might say well Paul you know I'm a sucker for needs if I were to follow my heart always in giving I would be broke in six months I've caught myself heart checking a response to a need but here's Paul's response to that question in anticipating what maybe they're thinking saying don't worry about your promise because God is lavishly generous and God's gracious giving has no limits. It is off the scale. Remember, loved ones, we have been talking about the context of giving, and, and God owns everything in the universe. It's all His. And anything that we already have has come to us from God. He's already been generous to us in giving us everything that we have. And so if you give it away, God can easily replace it. Notice that the word all is used five times in verse 8. You might want to underline them. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every or all good works. You see what Paul is saying? God is able to make you abound, so that whatever you need, whenever you need it, you will have what you need to be generous. Let that settle in your mind for a little bit. You have what you need to be generous in following your heart. God will give you what you need to be generous. And in fact, God gives us more than we need, so that not so that we can have more, but so that we can be more generous. Randy Alcorn wrote, God gives us more, not so we can increase the standard of our living, but in order that we can raise the standard of our giving. You see, loved ones, as we work this through, what Paul is trying to reinforce, and what we've been trying to reinforce these last six weeks and now into this one, is God is able to meet your needs so that you can meet the needs of others. 
Put another way, maybe think a little bit like this. There is never a time when you can't be generous because God is able to make all grace to you abound in all things at all times. You see, there's an issue of theology here. What is God like? Who is God? I suspect that some of us are maybe a little bit more miserly in our giving and our generosity because we wrongly conclude that if we do that, we won't have enough for ourselves. Are we reluctant to give because we haven't come to know the generosity of God properly? Or we haven't wrapped ourselves around really the wealth that God possesses? I am convinced that generous giving reflects back on our trust and our confidence in God's promises and God's ability to provide for my needs. Since giving naturally seems to result in having less, not more, it takes faith to believe that in giving, God will open up blessing. And as Christians, we must believe that God is able to do what he has promised to do, that he has the power to do what he promises to do. And so my question is, do you believe that God is a generous God? Do you believe that God can make all grace abound to you at all times in every circumstance? Do you believe that God is able to make all grace abound to you? See, human wisdom teaches that prosperity comes from grasping and hanging on to and accumulating wealth, not from giving it away. But faith trusts in God's promises, knowing that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. God's constant resupply will allow us to continually give more to meet the needs of others. This is the psychology of biblical giving. It might not be the psychology of the view of wealth and possessions in the world around us, but it's the psychology of the Bible in giving. Biblical generosity is founded and flows from a mind convinced that God is able to give you back more than you give to meet the needs of others. Another principle. I think there's a couple more. In giving, you disperse God's blessing. I don't know if we think that through from time to time. I I needed to be refreshed on all of these things, and this one again. But this is biblical stewardship, is it not? We've been talking about this. That stewardship says that I don't own anything. I simply manage another's resources. And so when it comes to wealth and possessions, all that we have, we are simply managers of us. God has given to us, and he expects us to manage it for him. And so we're to use God's resources as he desires and directs. The point being, as we give, God increases our ability to give. This is not a prosperity gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. Paul is not saying that God will bless your giving in order to enrich you. In other words, verse 10 is not laying out an incentive for giving along the lines that if you give, God will make you rich. Rather, in verse 10, Paul is explaining a consequence of giving. 
that as you are generous, God gives you more so that you can be even more generous. We do not give in order to become more prosperous. Rather, we give so God can increase our ability to give even more. It's not about getting more. It's about giving more. The NIV begins that verse with, You will be made rich in every way so that. Verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that. Now stop and think about that just for a moment. How would you finish that question? You will be made rich in every way so that. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? So that I can buy a new car? So that I can buy a new phone? So that I can put more money in my RSPs? So that I can get a new fishing rod? No, listen how Paul answers it. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See, too often we assume that God has increased our income to increase our standard of living when his stated purpose is to increase our standard of giving. So what Paul is telling them is this as he's urging them to keep their promise, as he's developing within them a biblical way of thinking about giving, not a worldly way. He's saying, you will never give generously without discovering God's ability to supply your need so that you can be generous again. And the more generous we are, the more God will give you. This will only be theological theory until we begin to practice it. But when you do, you will find and you will experience the generosity of God, that God is more than able to give back what you have been generous to so that you can be generous again as another need comes up. And so again, I think it bears repeating, I'm glad that Paul doesn't set a unified standard of generosity. He doesn't say generosity is this percentage of your income or generosity is this amount and once you've met that, you've been generous. Rather, he leaves the door open to each of us so that each of us might put God to the test and see if he is not able to open the heavens and pour unto us a blessing. Have you ever wondered why God may have given you more than you need? Probably every day I think that. Well, Randy Alcorn says this, God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so that we can find more ways to spend it. It's not so that we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children. It's not so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. It's so that we can give and give generously. So the biblical mindset biblical psychology behind giving is to conclude that God blesses us so that we can be even more generous to the needs around us. In giving, God is glorified. In giving, God is glorified. Verse 12 says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, your generosity to any given need 
amongst the people of God around the world, not only meets the needs of others, but do you hear what Paul is saying? It overflows in many thanksgivings to God. I rewrote a verse of a song. To God be the glory, great things he has done. My needs have been met through the giving of some. To feed and to clothe me and rescue my kin and loosen my tongue for his praises to sing. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear my thanks. This is what Paul says is that in giving, I don't receive praise. I don't receive glory. I don't receive kudos. We ought not to want that. Rather, God receives the glory. And so we give not so that we can have our backs padded. We give so that a need can be met. Uh, but primarily, we give so that God can be praised and glorified. The penultimate goal of giving is to meet the practical needs of God's people. The ultimate goal of generosity is to bring glory to God. Generous giving will bring about an overflowing anthem of praise to God. So the thinking that shapes biblical generosity and giving, what does it look like? Well, in giving, you reap what you sow. In giving, follow your heart. In giving, remember, you can't outgive God. In giving, remember that you're simply dispersing God's blessing. In giving, remember that God is glorified. And one more, and it, we're done. In giving, we magnify God's generosity. And you think, well, how do you, how do you get that, Paul? Well, look at how Paul ends the chapter. In fact, how he ends two chapters on giving. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, Paul ends by, by all this talk about generosity. By not pointing to the Macedonians, by not pointing to anybody else, but God. And God's generosity. And how has God been generous to us? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is that gift? It's the gift of Jesus Christ, his son. That gift came down from heaven to earth on that first Christmas day. When the Godhead took on humanity. Where Jesus took on flesh and blood. And the generosity that has flowed from that gift is indescribable. Think of what has come to your life because God is a generous God. Think how your world has been turned upside down because God has been a generous God to you. Think how you have been changed and shaped because of the indescribable gift of God to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to finally look at our God who is a generous God. And aren't you thankful that God is a generous God? And so he simply says, be like your heavenly father. As God has been generous to you, no holding back, his heart poured out in love to those who would put their faith and trust in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You can experience and receive the generosity of God even today if you will simply say, I open my heart, God, to your generous gift of your son. Would you change me? You will experience a generosity that you have never and will never again experience. May God help us to more and more be like him in our generosity to the needs of others around us. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the way that 
you direct giving not to percentages or numbers so that we can find satisfaction in meeting those numbers. But rather, you say, no, it's up to you. You figure it out. You, you respond to the needs of others as I have given to your need. Give cheerfully, give voluntarily, give individually, but give and, and, and know that, that you can never give to a point where I can't replace what you give. Father, would you teach us to be generous? Would you help us to learn generosity from your example? And Father, if there are any today that are watching or that are here that have not yet experienced the generosity of God through the person of Jesus Christ, will you shake them up? Will you take sleep from them until they realize that what they need is to give their heart to you and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.